This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hello, welcome to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Black and White is recorded in Toronto, Canada on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. My guest today is Kirk Brooks. Kirk has been mentoring young athletes of color for over 25 years, dedicated to providing a barrier-free hockey training experience for his own son and hundreds of talented players like him over almost three decades. Skills Hockey has graduated many students who have gone on to pursue careers in the NHL as players, but also as coaches, scouts, referees, trainers, and agents. And many of them have also returned to teach young players within the skills program. Just a couple years ago, Kirk also founded Seaside Hockey Association, which is essentially a hockey league for diverse communities. Kirk has been a major advocate for the diversity and inclusion in hockey in Canada and continues to work within the system to open doors to greater representation of Black people, people of color in the sport, in part working to eliminate traditional economic barriers in the sport of hockey in Canada. We're going to get into many of these topics of discussions. Uh, but first, I also met Kirk at the Toronto International Film Festival Gala, premiere of the film Black Ice, the audience award-winning entry in the 2022 edition of TIFF. Kirk and current and past hockey students, many now playing professionally, were featured prominently in the documentary, a film that examines the history of anti-Black racism in hockey, from the segregated leagues of the 19th century to professional leagues today, where Black athletes continue to struggle against bigotry. Lots to cover, as I mentioned. So welcome, Kirk, to Black and White. Well, thank you for having me. Hey, of course. It's a, it's a privilege for me. I know we've, I've been looking forward to this conversation since we met. Let's talk a little bit more about your background and specifically your love of hockey, your family's love of hockey. You know, tell us, like, where, where did you grow up and where did this love of hockey that you've essentially carried through your entire life and, and really, uh, you know, raised your family on hockey? Well, you know, like all Canadian families, we grew up, you know, watching Hockey Night in Canada, you know, listening to music, you know, 
you know, being from Nova Scotian background, were you either a Montreal Canadiens or Boston Bruins uh, fan? Habs. <laughs> no, no, I'm a Bruins fan. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, when I was younger, my dad obviously introduced me and my brothers to the game. You know, we lived in the West End of Toronto and, you know, black guys did play hockey in our area back then. So we got into it at a pretty young age. I didn't realize how much I loved hockey or how important hockey was going to be as part of my life until my son was born. Because when I, you know, circling back, you know, when I was 12 or 13, I stopped playing hockey. When I moved to Scarborough, most of the black guys in Scarborough, we played football. So I gave up hockey, played football for all those years. My son was born when I was 19 years old. We had Nathaniel. And, you know, on his first birthday, the very first thing I bought for him was, I didn't even think about it. All he got was equipment. He got skates, full equipment, helmet. You know, that was what he was going to do, hockey, because that's what I did. I was Canadian born. It's just something that I was, I was born into. That's where my just love of the game came from. Amazing. Amazing. So now fast forward. Now, how many children do you have that play hockey today? So I've got three. I've got uh, my older son, Nathaniel, who currently coaches with the Arizona Coyotes as a development coach of the National Hockey League. Uh, my daughter, Nyla, is a head coach and a university student. She's 20 years old. She's a head coach at Seaside. She plays hockey too. She's our head instructor. Amazing. And my youngest, uh, Xavier, is still playing in the, junior, the Northern Ontario Junior Hockey League. He's 18 and he's a defenseman. Amazing. All right. It's a really, it's a family affair. Absolutely. Okay. Truly a Canadian story. Absolutely. You know? Yes. Exactly. We are the typical Canadian <laughs> hockey family. We eat, you know, breathe hockey. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, we were talking earlier and I've, I've shared this story before, but, you know, we were talking just before about my love of hockey as well, growing up in, in Montreal. And I joke about this, but, you know, when I grew up in the early 70s, I actually thought that the the Stanley Cup happened in Montreal every year, yes. right? <laughs> you know, and I loved hockey. I played street hockey. I played floor hockey. I was getting to, trying to become a, a bigger skater. But, you know, one of the challenging events that happened in my life is when I wanted to play organized hockey at the age, I think I was nine or 10 years old. And I remember my stepfather, who was a white man, saying, you know, black kids have weak ankles and you can't play. And that was essentially the end of my hockey dream before it even began. But I know that love of hockey, it never left me. And of course, I, I gained to love it as a fan of the Montreal Canadiens and, and still am today. So we met at the Black Ice documentary film premiere gala at TIFF, which was amazing. It's a film that was executive produced by Drake and LeBron James. So I like the fact that they, you know, they're putting their money into these kinds of projects to really uh, shine a light and bring a lens to the issues of systemic inequality in hockey. And everyone was there, you know, I got to say, you know, we talked about it and I talk about this openly, but as a biracial white black kid growing up in white homes, white neighborhoods, going to white schools, I'm still, you know, I'm in my 50s now getting to know the black community. But I got to say, there was nothing like getting into this fancy gala after party of the movie. And there was so many black people and it felt really great. You know, it was, you know, for me, one of the most exciting things about being part of that was, is the the amount of powerful black people that were in the room. It just wasn't just black people. You know, there were black people from banking, lawyers, doctors, professional hockey players, the NBA players came to support. Just regular, normal, everyday people were there, but fathers, mothers, you know, we had every person, people from the entertainment industry, people from the arts. So to me, no, it was like you're just right. being it in was, that room. There, there was some big hitters, Absolutely. you know, and it, was, and it just kind of, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's what happens at Tiff Gallus, but that's not the regular experience for the black community, right? More more so now, but it's such a great experience. P.K. Subban was there. I got to talk to him. Kim Elu, who's featured prominently uh, NHL, Wayne Simmons, Curtis Joseph, 
a former Raptor and still playing in Detroit. And of course, uh, Fred Van Vliet. So it was really, and everyone was just kind of talking, you know, there was no big deal. You know, they were sitting, standing beside you. But I want, I wanted to talk to you a bit more about the film, how you came to be associated with it, what you thought about the, the film, what people who are hopefully going to go see it when it comes out on some streaming network or in a theater. Tell me about the impact you think this film will have and, and on you and on the community and on Canadians in general. How I got involved with Black Ice was really, you know, through my girl. My girl, you know, has always been pushing me. I kind of do what I do behind the scenes. I don't look for any publicity. I just keep my head down and just keep working. For the last couple of years, she's been pushing me. You got to come out. You got to come out. You got to come out. Let people know what you do. And basically, there was a interview on CBC Radio, Nova Scotia, that she was listening to, and they were talking about they were making this documentary. And she didn't ask me. She went behind my back, and she actually sent an email to the producer, the producers saying, hey, you got to talk to this guy. The producer called her back. And, you know, before I know it, I was put in touch with one of the producers, uh, Karen Zilak, and that's all she wrote. I was basically part of their team. I helped out in a lot of different areas with the film. We had a lot, we spent a lot of time working on the film, not just only for the seaside kids getting involved, but myself personally. You know, I helped them out with some stuff they had to get done in Nova Scotia and outside of Toronto because I've been involved in the game for so long. I was able to to reach out and, and help them in some areas. Amazing. So, and and one of the the learnings I took away from the documentary was this mostly forgotten history of black hockey going all the way back to the 19th century. And you talked about Nova Scotia, which has got a rich history of, of black community going back centuries. Uh, and notably, they featured the Africville Seasides, which actually your, your new uh, league that you form kind of uh, pays homage to that, right? The Seasiders that you've created now. And uh, and essentially the colored hockey league. I never even knew this existed. Everything, like even everything that I've done, I've as actually I've actually taken from Nova Scotia. Uh, when I started my black tournament in 1992, what a lot of people don't know is that the, there was a huge black hockey tournament in Nova Scotia, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Is one of the biggest tournaments around black hockey tournaments. Like they had it every single year. But as those guys got older, my uncle and all them, it sort of just died down. So I kind of like oh, I kind of like took the idea from from home and brought it to Toronto and had the had the first black hockey tournament in 1992. And then when I was doing the the skills program, um, I wanted to make sure that I continued to pay homage to the guys that continually started the game from the beginning. Uh, and I went I took it back not only from the colored hockey league but I also added guys like Tony McKechnie and and Mike Mars and that sort of misgeneration in between, and got them involved with our program. The seaside name, uh, Anthony Stewart, myself, and my son were on the phone and we were arguing, oh, hey, what are we going to call this organization? And my, my, my son says, what about, oh, seasides? We're like, oh, it just rang a bell. You know, it just fit everything we wanted to do. It was, uh, it was uh, we could pay respect to the league. We, we're from Nova Scotia. That's our heritage. It was a great story to tell. And this was our way of not letting the story die. We didn't know, have any idea that Black Ice was going to be done. Mm -hmm. I'd met the Flo the Frosties, I always pronounce his name wrong, years back, way back when they first came out with the book. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I got one of the signed autograph copies from way back. Yeah, I had the chance to meet him also yeah. and speak with him at the at the gala event. And, uh, you know, he was white, by the way. Absolutely. Right? But he his book is from New York. Uh, did, he did so much amazing research to put in his book, which informs the documentary. Oh, yeah. He, listen, his work... Um, 
what he doesn't talk about is back, I remember when he was first trying to get the book out back in the day, nobody really took him seriously. When he first came out with the book act back in the day, even the NHL wasn't warm to the book back then. So it took, like, and you know, even back, even what I was doing back then wasn't, there was a few of us that were doing it. But again, it, the, hockey wasn't warm to what it was we were doing. But now we fast forward 30 years and just now it's like, you know, boom. It's just, you know, the NHL's done it, you know, has jumped in. They've done a good job of trying to make up for lost time. And speaking of, this kind of connects to um, one of the most poignant moments in Black Ice was a, a scene featuring Herb Carnegie. Herb Carnegie was a uh, black hockey player, uh, amazing hockey player, who, by the way, was finally posthumously, because unfortunately he passed away uh, in 2012 at the age of 92. He was enshrined this year in the Hockey Hall of Fame. His, uh, I believe his daughter and really championed this. And uh, and I think it, it was a long time coming. But in a, a 2009 Hockey Night in Canada interview, which is featured in Black Ice, and I found it on YouTube, uh, uh, Herb Carnegie recalled that when he was 18, Con Smythe, the then owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1937, was quoted as saying, I would take Carnegie tomorrow if someone could turn him white. Right? And uh, and and Herb Carnegie, this isn't, so now he's, you know, this is 70 years after uh, he was basically shut out of the NHL and he's being interviewed. And I I think he he's legally blind by this time. Yes, yes. You know, and, and he says, he cut me, he cut my knees off. He broke my legs. It's horrible, said Carnegie, sobbing and visibly shaken, remembering what happened more than seven years past. I, I, I can tell you, uh, this the, the screening was at Roy Thompson Hall. I don't think there was a dry eye in that room. It was so emotional that, you know, he, this was still what was, he was carrying this for all that time. Just, just thinking about it now and hearing it, it just sends shivers through my whole body and it still affects me to this day hearing him actually say that because even as a historian of black hockey and knowing a lot about it, I didn't, I've never, I didn't see that interview in 2009, but when it was, it just, it just, it just, it just hit me, you know, um, I just don't know how to describe it. You know, the one thing that I will say about the documentary is that we, we got mad. I spent, I was mad a lot of the times. We cried a lot of the times. We laughed a lot of the times. We had a lot of mixed emotions. From that, I think the documentary was well done, and it actually it went far enough to to let everybody know what is really happening and what is really gone, which is really going on, without actually insulting the business of hockey. Do you know what I'm saying? It was perfectly well said. The director, the stories, the people in it. Uh, it was it was well done, and like I said, just talking about you know seeing her break down like that, and, and I know him, I met him, I've sat with him, I've eaten food with him, I played in his golf tournament, I've joked with him, and I never knew about that, you know. It's it, even reading his book, I was always like, okay, you know, even as a black man, I was like, yeah, oh, you know, it must have been bad, it must have been bad, right? But we had no clue, like we had we had no clue, and tell Rain, you know, I know Bernice and the rest of the family were, you know, were were taking charge of the Hockey Hall of Fame, but it's really his grandson, Rain Carnegie, who really started talking about that. Like when he started talking about on the golf course during COVID, we thought he was crazy. We're like, okay, like you're crazy. 
But he's like, yeah, no, 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 no. He just kept going. We started signing positions and we just got behind him. And, you know, to, you know, to watch him get inducted this year is actually amazing. Absolutely. Well, it's, um, you know, uh, Jean Beliveau, who was an idol of mine. Actually, I used to, I learned to skate at Jean Beliveau Arena because yep. he lived in Good my, hockey player. Great he, hockey player. Yes. But he wrote a book and her and mentioned Herb Carnegie. That of course, he should have been in the NHL. Right. And uh, I'm and as we know, this is a story that that is repeated hundreds of times, you know, and if truth be told, probably thousands of times, we just haven't heard of some of the people whose dreams were shattered simply because of the color of their skin. I have a story and I can't remember the gentleman's name. It's in a newspaper. But back when Tony McKechnie was in camp with the Buffalo Sabres, he wasn't the only black guy in camp. There were two black guys in camp, but they did, but they only had room for one. And if I, I I don't remember the exact name, I'd have to look it up. But this gentleman ended up being ended up going behind the camera and filming the camp. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, but he had just as many points as Tony McKexy in that camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, this is this is the reality, right? And and uh, so I want to take a little break. But when we come back, we're gonna actually dig into. I, I, you know, I have many people who, uh, and, you know, I wrote about this in my book, Black and White, about really deconstructing what we mean by systemic racism or systemic inequality. And I want to get into this. And I think there's nothing better uh, to use hockey as an example of what are these systemic barriers are like. So when I come back with Kurt, we're going to get into it. And uh, and I want to really uh, leverage your expertise in the world of hockey so that we can kind of better understand what we're talking about and hopefully what we can do about it. All right. If, if I may just comment on the one thing that you talked about, the weak ankles. So our, a lot of our players are still told that today. And you know what we teach the kids to say? Yeah, that's where we get all of our speed from. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Exactly. Well, we'll be right back with Black and White in uh, just a second. Hey everyone, if you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, 
positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Okay, welcome back to Black and White with my guest, Kirk Brooks from the Seasiders and Skills. So we were having a good laugh about uh, about our weak ankles. Kirk. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, it's something that we hear about. Which the kids are still hearing that today. And, you know, what we try to do is we've tried to take all of these different slogans that, that were talked against us in hockey. We try to turn them into a positive for the kids, basically. And yeah. one of the things with the weak ankles is the kids will say, hey, yeah, that's where I get my speed from. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's funny to talk about it now, but you know, as I said, for me, it was uh, it was quite serious because that was the end of the conversation, right? And uh, I like the fact now that it's just part of a trope, right? That you're turning into something funny and and essentially motivating the young kids to to know that how ridiculous it is. Well, we had to break. We had to. That was one of the things that was drilled into our heads when we were coming up trying to play the game. So we had to kind of like break that because. It was said so often, black people believed it, <laughs> right? Oh, because you look at your legs, you know, your, your ankles aren't skinnier. You actually believe that you shouldn't be on skates, right? Yeah. So we had to kind of like break that with the parents, right? Hey, listen, no, it's not true. Don't worry about, like, look at these skates. There's, you know, so we still deal with that. Exactly. Based on, on the conversations we've had before today, you know, I couldn't think of a better person to help us deconstruct this uh, topic about systemic barriers, systemic inequality, and using hockey as an example. And since, you know, you you live and breathe hockey, and I know that our listeners and the readers of my book really have appreciated when we do the work of uh, trying to deconstruct it and, ex and explain it more for those who are less aware. And I think it's always a good opportunity to do that. So let's talk about the different factors. So hinted at this, but the the big, the bigotry and prejudice that for a long time was a barrier to access to the sport. Some cultural barriers, you know. Uh, we know that, for example, we had a big thing here with uh, one of the professional teams, the Calgary Flames, where the head coach was actually fired when it came to light that when he was coaching Akeem Alou, actually, a black hockey player in juniors, that he let out tirades of, of racist tirades and using the N-word because he didn't want to hear hip-hop music in the locker room, et cetera. So we'll talk about that. 
And of course, then there's the institution and the system of the leagues itself, where the way that it's set up and the way that it's constructed and the way that it operates creates its own barriers. So let's start at the beginning, Kirk, right? So tell me, can you give us kind of a quick summary as to traditionally what have been the barriers to Black people, people of color, essentially kids from traditionally marginalized communities? I think maybe the best way for us to attack this is for me to really explain to your listeners that don't understand hockey and the different levels. You know, maybe I could just take a minute and just explain that, you know, hockey starts at, please. you know, we have house league hockey, which is really the beginners. And then out of house league, we have, you know, we, you know, sort of select or and or all-star teams. This is where the system actually starts to happen because at the house league level, a lot of the kids that play, the teams are coached by parents. Yes. And friends of parents. So depending on where you're from or what neighborhood you're from, somebody's dad is going to coach the team with two or three of their friends. And then, you know, as a young brother or somebody coming into the game, you're already behind the eight ball because those kids are going to be more favorite, that group, I guess you. So it starts as early as house league. And what I like to say is there's a lot of, uh, and I said, I talked about this in Black Ice, but there's a lot of uh, young brothers or a lot of diversity on the back end in hockey, a lot of defensemen. Interesting. Usually it's because they're usually, and I said this before, uh, is they're usually the best skaters or biggest or most athletic. In the old way, house league was where they actually counted goals and winning and scoring. You wanted to make sure you didn't get core against. So you (laughs) put them on defense. So that's really house league. Okay. Then on the house league, then you go to select, which is just basically your best house league players. But then that's your first barrier to cost. So already you're a house league player. In order to move up a level and play selector, it costs money for that. Yes. So you got to pay additional fees to play select, and then you have to then you have to start paying training and travel. So automatically, from a house league player playing, you know, in between four hundred and seven hundred dollars for the season, automatically in your first or second year in hockey, it's now two thousand. Okay. Wow. To play both. Okay. Then from there, you would move up to A hockey, which is your first level of rep, which is select players, which are capable of moving up to A which is just about a step above the select level. Then again, that hockey is usually anywhere between two and 5,000 in Toronto. Per year. Per year, just to play that level. In addition to all the extra training, hotels, tournaments, all that type of stuff, the pressures of actually being able to keep your kid to be able to make those teams and play on those teams. So therefore, already at the A level, it's already starting to get too expensive. I'll use Scarborough's example. The medium income they said is something around ninety-three thousand, somewhere in that range, between eighty-nine and ninety-three thousand. So when you start getting a player to come household through house league per household, 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 right? <laughs> yeah. it's right, household. Yeah. So by the time you start just getting a player to A level, when you're talking between three and five thousand dollars for somebody to play, it's already out of reach for yes. a lot of those families. Yes. Right, and not only black families, but everybody. Yes. Right now, obviously, from a socioeconomic standpoint, you know we know that traditionally underrepresented communities, Black communities, people of color, uh, Indigenous communities, obviously, they just the intersectionality of their income also plays a factor. But now, what you're telling me is that this boat is bigger because now it's affecting non-BIPOC people as well. Absolutely. So that's a. Then you go to, and, and this is in Toronto. It's more expensive. You go outside of the city, you can save yourself some money. But then you start going to double A now, which is from A, you start going double A, and then you're between like four and 6000 for a good program. But there's even more pressure to do the power skating and to go to camps. Because what happens is this is where the system comes in. 
is now you're starting to get into teams that are coached by hockey coaches or guys that are in the business well, of hockey. So this is so, uh, you know, my kids are, my daughter's almost 11. She doesn't play hockey. My son is six. Don't know if he's going to be playing hockey. Um, he could play in Seaside. Right? <laughs> exactly. I do have friends that have kids that are, you know, 10 years old and uh, maybe 12, 13, but they are, they've progressed, right? So yes. just to, I'm thinking of one of our, our good friends and I think he played in, in double A, was in a triple A, then these professional coaches now, right? These coaches are actually paid and it, it's political, it's driven by money, and it's driven by the fact that they are selling the opportunity that they're going to make good teams, good players, and then therefore their children on that team have a better chance to progress, right? But you start getting into the double and triple A, and now you're, these teams are being coached by guys, including my son, who coached triple A. I'm not just talking about is we're in the business of hockey, but what they've taken it to a step to where the parents now feel that if I don't go to my coach's hockey school, or if I don't play spring hockey for him, or if I don't train with the trainer that he recommends, or if I don't go to the gym that he recommends, then my kid's spot is in jeopardy on the team. Yes. So now there's a game that's being played within the game. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And of course, again, those who have been in the game and playing the game, traditionally non-BIPOC people are in those positions of managing the game and the systems, right? Not saying that there isn't some diversity more and more today, but traditionally this is what's been phased. So the diversity at the top levels and the AAA levels is still not there. Exactly. It's still not there across the board, across the country, across Canada, across North America. There's very few. We have a lot of diversity in the GTHL now. Uh, that's what happened naturally. Scott Oakman and the GTHL have actually done a really good job. Uh, some of the organizations within the GTHL 30 years ago weren't diversified at all. Now some of those organizations are actually leading the charge and having black coaches and black players as part of the organization. So we're really happy about that. Yeah. The one thing that I want to be clear on is I have no problem in coaches at the double and triple A level getting paid. Okay? As long as you're qualified. That's the first thing. And as long as there's no pressure from the parents to have to go to your hockey school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or well, go to your trade. You, yeah, you know it, what I'm it, saying? Of course, of like, course. But this is this is the thing. I'm not in hockey like you, but my spidey senses tells me that that may be not quite the reality today. No, it, it's, it's not. And I think that's one of the areas where the system has actually gotten away from us. Yeah. That's somewhere that if hockey really wants to actually help fix some of the holes in it, that's a gaping hole. And like I said, I'm not against coaches getting paid, yeah. but I believe that we have to have some form of system in place that where these parents, let's say, for instance, I train your son, Stephen, to be a hockey player all the way till he's 10 or 11, and he goes out for a triple A team. If he's good enough to make that triple A team after I've trained him for four years and I'm just Robbie from down the street. Yes. As a parent, Stephen, you should be able to say, I'm going to continue to train with Robbie down the street and not feel that your position at the higher level is threatened is because exactly. you're not training. But they're, the they're tying those things together. It's tradition, tied right? Together. Absolutely. Thank you for explaining that progression and yeah. it keeps going to junior and, yes. and post. So I think there's an issue in the system and the way that it rewards 
control and that you need to play a certain way in regards to advance and and be part of the system. And if you don't do that, then you're really outside the system, at least today. The socioeconomic, essentially money is a big issue because it's an expensive sport. It's not like basketball, right? You, you can have an old pair of sneakers and a ball and you can play. Absolutely. Right? And shorts. So that's the first thing. So then I remember we talked about this, about your son playing in junior and and who's black and other a few more other black players and they've had to go somewhere else to play junior hockey right so I, I'm thinking it's not about so much about the economics here what's what's happening there okay so I'll use I'll talk about my son as an example because we went and tried out for five or six junior a teams and within those five or six junior a teams I could count the amount of black kids they're like on one hand, okay? Along the 401 corridor, there are 30 teams, okay? My son goes up north, eight hours north of Toronto to play in a Northern Junior Hockey League and has seen more brothers playing up there <laughs> than he had playing in Toronto. So obviously the system, there's something wrong with that when we have so many quality hockey players from diverse backgrounds in Toronto and they can't find jobs. What? What's going on? So I'm gonna take it back to ownership. I'm going to take it back to control of these teams. I'm going to take it back to junior hockey still has a lot of parent ownership in the junior A squads. Okay. So a lot of the junior A teams are actually owned by parents. Okay. Their companies own them. So so in that so, sense, it makes sense. So their sons yes. have a pace to play. So from that standpoint, you could go, well, that makes sense. They have a vested interest because they've invested in these teams to create opportunity for their children, right? But at the same time, if that's their first motivation, and may, I'm not saying I don't know, but it, that that's their only motivation, it creates less opportunity for people who are not have don't have the same opportunity, right? So there there's a conflict a little bit there in terms of of more diversity and inclusion, unless the Black community, the Indigenous community, people from other communities who are not traditionally in charge of hockey teams at the junior level and higher are the ones that create a team for their community. Absolutely. So I want to say there are some community-based junior A teams in Toronto and in Ontario that are well-run. They're community-based. They're run properly. They're fair. They've got a great history, but that's a small percentage. Okay. And what happens is, is these teams continue to pass from parent to parent. Of course, it's a it's a legacy thing, right? We've seen this same situation if you look traditionally again in college admissions, Absolutely. right? So if your family, your your grandfather went to Harvard and your father went to Harvard, right? And of course, recently we saw movie stars pay for their kids to, to go to certain university. So I'll go back real quick on, on history. I was talking to Rico Phillips, who's in charge of the OHL diversity. That's the Ontario Hockey the League. Ontario Hockey League okay. the other day. And I said to him, I go, a lot of people are complaining that we don't have enough black people in high positions in hockey. And the truth be told, Stephen, is that we didn't have the numbers. The kids that you're actually seeing that are in power positions today, Kevin Weeks, Anson Carter, Jamal Meyer, Trevor Daly's, Chris Stewart, all those guys are from the work that was started 30 years ago. Yes. Okay, they're now we have numbers. You know, back then we had, what, 30 or whatever black players playing the league. Now we've had over 100. Half of those guys have graduated. Now they're starting to get jobs within the league. 
So now the numbers for us are starting to increase. So that's why you're starting to see more of us across the board to hockey. This is a conversation Wes Hall had and I had about representation, yes. right? But, uh, you know, and I said to Wes, I said, it's like he's focused with the Black North Initiative in terms of representation of Black people in C-suites and on boards. And I go, yes, but you actually have to have a pool of talent to draw from and a pipeline that creates. And I think we're talking about the same thing. And, Absolutely. You know, I pulled this stat, 18 Black hockey players that played in the National Hockey League from the essentially 1970 to 1991, 18, right? Now, currently, there are 32 teams in the NHL, and I believe we talked, there's 23 active players per team. So about seven, let's say it's just under 740, and there are 26, by the research I did, 26 Black players playing today in the NHL, and I believe there's also Indigenous kids. I think it's something like 50 non-white players. Yes. Asian descent, I believe even a Filipino. And the other thing is that since 1991, we've almost tripled the population of Black people in Canada, right? Yes. So we see that there's still a lot more work to do, but you touched on the right thing. You have to do the work now to create talent and a pool of talent to go through the whole pipeline and system, which is what really you're doing Absolutely. with the Seaside, right? And other things that you're doing. Yeah. So for me, I'm now on my, so my, the Seaside players are now my fourth and fifth generation of coming through. And I've seen it because when we started our actually program is one of the reasons why we started is, is that I played, so I quit. So once I went back to the rink with my son, I realized that all the black players, I didn't see no dads. I saw a lot of black moms back in the nineties with their kids, okay, in the rink, black kids. But I'm like, oh, I know your dad. Your dad played for years. Why is he not here? So when I started my program, it was really to try to get the black guys that I know. And that's why I started the black tournament, to get the men to come out of retirement so we could all play together. So that would be more of a community base. So all of our kids would come to the rink and see all of us playing, right? So that's how we did that when we first started. So why weren't they coming? A lot of them were bitter. A lot of them were mad at the game. Uh, a lot of them didn't have good experiences in the game, uh, uh, and they just weren't, you know, but their kids wanted to play, so they're just letting the moms do it. So I actually thought that we needed to fix that. So we did a good job because, you know, in the very first camp we had, we had all the dads there. It was like a beautiful thing, but that was an issue in the Black community back when my son started playing. Okay. You were saying earlier your Seaside League Association and I think you're focused on kids under nine years old, if I'm correct. And you talked about the mix that you have something like 45 girls. Absolutely. Right? Little, we have 45 and the majority of them are sisters. <laughs> <They're good. laughs> and 71 boys. Absolutely. Right. And yes. uh, it's not just black kids. It's no. like, you know, no. people of color. You have kids that are white. You have you, like you're open for business. We're, we are we are a true multicultural hockey organization. Amazing. Absolutely. We look like the city of Toronto. Well, which is the way it should be. Amazing. So thank you for, for helping kind of deconstruct this. It sounds like, just a, as a quick recap, there are the way that the system has been created from a legacy perspective. It sounds to me that we need somebody, associations, the people, the people that it would benefit with reform or changing the system to uh, amplify diversity and inclusion there. So obviously, it sounds like the economic factors of that sport are astronomical. Like I was saying, I talked to my friend and he was saying, man, it's going to cost me $25,000 <laughs> for my kid to play hockey. Absolutely. I'm going 25000 That's like whatever in Canada, that's like $40,000 pre-tax dollars. I say it's $100,000 to raise a hockey player. 
But you touched on something that I really wanted to talk about is that the Seaside Hockey Association was born out of the fact that we needed to have an organization that looked like us, that was represented by us, and of good hockey people that were actually around for a long period of time. The GTHL recognized that. So the GTHL is a leader because we are the first organization of color in this country. Outside of our Aboriginal brothers and sisters that have their leagues up north, we are the first or the OMHA doesn't have one. Then none of these leagues. The GTHL had confidence in our group to say, hey, you guys are the guys. This is going to be the blueprint. We're going to see what you guys are going to do. And then we're going to take this blueprint. And we're going to teach what we've learned to the guy in Ottawa, to the guy in BC, because we need more seasides across the country for these kids and afforded it for them to play. So this is an interesting. So I was on a literary panel uh, in September at the Toronto International Festival of Authors. And there was another Black author, biracial author, academic from McGill. And uh, we got into it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and there was a question from the audience that said, uh, you know, we've been trying so hard to change the system and all that. And essentially, the, the, the person that asked the question said, maybe we should just have our own systems, right? And the other author said, well, uh, they've been, you know, uh, talking about, there's lots of books about that. And she was kind of cheerleading that process. And I, I'm thinking to myself, I go, first of all, Name me one utopian place in the world that was attempted, that succeeded. And I know changing a system is a lot of work and it's tiring and we're fed up and blah, blah, blah. I get it. I understand all those things. Now, I'm taking, I'm mentioning this because you're essentially at this point going, you're not saying I'm not part of the system, but you're saying we can't just wait for the system to change. We have to do something. So I guess the obvious logic of this is at some point, you won't need to have a seaside league if the system, it might not be for a couple of generations, but if you achieve your goal, you will integrate to a system that actually looks more like the seaside system. One of the really cool things about what you just said was, is that there are groups that are pushing the narrative that we need to have our own table. We need to have our own leagues. No, no, no. Listen, the hockeyist league has been established. It's been established for years. So in order for us to actually really strengthen, we're a lot of smart hockey people happen to be black. So we need to get to the table. With Seaside, we have a vote now. We get invited exactly. to meetings. They pick us up. They call for our input. All of the other clubs in the GTHL, which have been great partners for us, have helped us. They, hey, Kirk, how can we go out in our neighborhood and find black players? What can we do to do this? So now there are a lot of, lot of programs being launched across the city because we're all, the, the, the system has actually worked for Seaside. Does that make sense, Stephen? Yes, absolutely. So, so the system's actually working for us. We're actually growing. They're actually helping us grow with the eye on expanding it to include more. We're just hoping that this motivates the other leagues in Ontario or across the country to do the same. Exactly. There was an organization that was applied for, and I won't mention any names, for in California, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, a, a black-run organization that applied to USA Hockey for a charter and they were turned down. They essentially went to a meeting and they got turned down. They had no chance in the meeting because the old school guys that were actually running the organization had already made their minds up that we're only gonna have two organizations in California. We don't want another one. Yes, yes, yes. And meanwhile, the guy that was leading the charge was a consummate professional. He's an NHL guy, he's been established if anybody should have been able to get another association, it should have been him, but they basically turned him down. So my question is, how do we get past that? You know, how does USA Hockey and how does Hockey Canada, how do we promote more ownership? 
because remember, it's not for profit. So let's call it more management of these organizations by people of color across the board. That's well, the big... I think you kind of touched on it too. It's not going to happen overnight because you have to have people of color, black people, indigenous people, and others uh, of traditionally underrepresented communities that go through the system, right? So somehow they need to have access to the system. There needs to be an openness for collaboration, as you just described, right? I have a suggestion to the hockey community that, and I'll give a very simple answer. <laughs> I really don't want to give this away because I was saving this from my cross-country tour one day when I get invited on one. But as a real simple way of actually fixing this, there are a lot of grassroots hockey programs in North America. In Ontario, Seaside's the only one that is actually GTHL recognized. But if hockey went out and actively brought all these organizations into the fold, these leagues would grow by 100% overnight. Exactly. So if one of the leagues in Nova Scotia decided that they're going to go, okay, there's seven or eight grassroots program, you know what we're going to do? We're going to certify all those programs to be part of our organization. No, what, it, what did we say? There was 70, for, let's say there's uh, over 100 kids of yeah. Seasiders, right? Yeah. There are 15 million people that live in Ontario. Absolutely. Right? So there's a lot more children. So to your point, it's finding a model that works, which is demonstrated that it's, it's working, that's successful, that's inclusive and diverse, that is willing to work within the system and with other organizations, and then amplifying that. Yeah, like I said, our partners have been great. The GTHL has been great. They listen to us. We go back and forth sometimes. Last year, they had to tell me, Kurt, they kept calling me, close your registration, close your registration, right? Yeah. So what I was doing, I kept having kids coming. What am I going to do, Stephen? Turn them away. So I just kept on opening up the registration, yeah, register, course. right? Anyway. It's hard to say no to to little yeah. kid who's so excited. But I, I tell you, a lot of the growth, and maybe we may want to leave this for the close, but a lot of the growth in hockey, hockey's numbers are down across this country. I have wealthy friends that are now saying hockey's too expensive for them. Now, when you have the rich dudes saying hockey's too expensive, you know we have a challenge. Well, of course. And so we were talking about this. So in Canada, and I, I'm sure, I, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in Canada, we have we have some organizations that have stepped up. You know, we have Canadian Tire, yes. for example, Amazing. in this country, the Jumpstart program. Amazing. I'm not, again, I, I don't have kids that play hockey, but I see the ads on TV who are granting monies to children who come from diverse backgrounds and also with lower socioeconomic opportunities, other companies like Bauer providing equipment because it's an expensive sport. So it sounds like to me, you know, and we're talking about like, I think the Jumpstart program in 2021 from Kenny Tire funded $32 million. So it's not insignificant. Jumpstart has been a great partner for Seaside. You know, and that's like, uh, I just saw the number, 240,000 kids across the country. Absolutely, right? Jumpstart's an amazing program. So, but I think you said it earlier. I think the problem is not, finding the money to grant and subsidize kids playing hockey. It's finding a way to reduce the cost of entry to hockey. Okay. So here's <laughs> here's the here's the the how should I put this? The Jumpstart is an amazing program. I love it. They're amazing partners for Seaside. Okay. The Hockey Canada SIS program is an amazing partner for us hockey programs, not only Seaside, for all the hockey programs. The challenge is, is that, how should I say it politely without insulting anybody? That is the lower income earning families. That's a growth area, but that's not what we're missing in hockey. What we're missing now is the funding for the two parent, two kid apartment that make between 75 and 100 grand. There's more of them that can't play 
because they don't make enough money. Yeah, and they, also they don't actually qualify. They for don't some qualify yes. for these subsidy programs because they're above the limit for both, so they can't get the funding. So Canadian Tire and all these companies, they've done a great job, but we need somebody to step in for the families in the middle class. So what would that look like? It would have to have some form of, uh, of uh, the qualification process would have to be raised to. But where would the dollars come from? Who, like, is it like, let's face it, the sport is expensive because you have to rent ice, you have to buy equipment. These, these tournaments, people have to drive, they have to shuttle. I mean, it just sounds like there's just money, money, money to just for your kid to be able to, to play hockey and have fun. And let's face it, it's like the, it's like, uh, you know, I'm a big Formula One fan, right? And all these people who want to be Formula, you know, there's only 20 <laughs> drivers that get to drive those cars. There's only 740 people that get to play in the NHL every year, right? So is there an unrealistic expectations or is it that desire because of the love of hockey from parents that they want their kids to, they're willing to invest thinking their kid is going to make it to the NHL? Is this unrealistic? So I think that the first thing is hockey players are bored, not made. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say that it's okay for parents to actually invest in their kids, you know, hockey, soccer, football, baseball. And if they have a dream of making it, I'm all for that. Because some of the relationships, like everything my family has and all the stuff my son has, he's doing well for himself, all comes from the relationships that we've built playing hockey. We teach the kids, you see that phone you have? That is your most valuable resource because that guy that you played against over there, he might be the prime minister of Canada. This guy might be a lawyer. So we're not just teaching them the hockey. Hey, this is where your whole life, these relationships are going to carry yeah, you. Access to networks the, of people. All this the way, can carry you all the way through. Here's the thing. Uh, I don't want to go ahead and, and talk too soon, but we are actually working on a solution to fund those families that make that 90000 to to 100000 We are working on that solution because in our work on the street, we know that that's where the big opportunity is for us to have a big increase, not just in hockey, in sports across the board. If we could actually have a national program to help those kids, we'll see an increase of sports across the board, not just in hockey. Amazing. Well, uh, just to, I could talk for hours, but we got to wrap it up. But I know that from our many conversations offline that you're a hopeful person because you're doing a lot of stuff in the background to get to that next stage. You just mentioned something that you're working on. I know there's other things you're working on as well that uh, we're not gonna mention today, but maybe at another time. But are you hopeful for the future of hockey, uh, a hockey that's more diverse and inclusive in Canada, in North America? My answer is gonna be kind of sound uh, backwards, but I'm actually very hopeful for hockey. I think the growth of hockey lies in the diversity of the game. I think the increase in registrations and kids playing the game is going to come from the diversity. It's not going to come from the traditional hockey communities. But my fear is, Stephen, is that we're in 10 years time, like I'm seaside. I have 130 players, but there are a hundred programs like mine in North America. So we are looking at in about Eight to 10 years time, usually when it comes to the draft age, where kids are good enough to go to the OHL Western Hockey League, we usually have 20 or 30 kids that are good enough to be considered for that. Sure. In eight to 10 years, we're going to have a thousand wow. or 2,000 because we see it. We've been in a long time. I see some, where are they going to play? So we're even, believe it or not, hockey has to start thinking forward. Okay, you've created all this diversity. You've created all this action. You've created all these programs. You've funded all these players. But what are you going to do with them in eight years when they come to the promised land and they're good enough 
where they all come from. Well, this is, uh, but if you look at uh, soccer, football around the world, like in, in the UK, for example, they have five leagues, right? And even in the, in the fifth division, they're making some money, they're making a living. They're not Ronaldo making 500,000 pounds a week, but they're making a living. So maybe that could be, uh, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. So I'm but hopeful. I think, that, I think that's a, pro- a good problem. It's a great face. problem to have. And I'm just putting it out there to the hockey community and the greater minds to start thinking. I like it. And what would you say, just one more final word, what would you say society in general can learn from hockey in regards to addressing systemic inequality overall? Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer that question properly, but I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, when I look at hockey, because hockey is the national sport that everybody plays it, so the problems and issues that we're actually having with the diversity inclusion and all the, the mess with Hockey Canada and all this other type of stuff shows that your organizations are going to have to be accountable. I don't know if that makes any sense to who you pick to run your organizations, the rules that you actually put in place. Uh, um, transparency. Transparency, how you treat the parents. Like, you know, I think the rebuild of hockey, the teardown and current rebuild that's going to take place in hockey, I think is going to be a good example for other organizations to actually follow. Amazing. Like, you're not going to be able to have a board that's just handpicked. You're going to have to have boards now that actually look like Canada. So I think that hockey is going to be a really good roadmap for the rest of the organizations. Amazing. I think I, I think you're right. My friend, thank you very much, Kirk. This has been, I knew we'd have this great conversation. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I expect many found our discussion at Lightning. Thank you to Kirk Brooks. You can learn more about Kirk's skills program at www.skillshockeyinc.com and the Seaside Minor Hockey Association at www.seasidehockey.ca. Kirk Brooks. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, it's a pleasure. Soon. Thank you. God bless. Take Thank care. You. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and take the time to rate our show. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks for my producer, sound designer and engineer, Noah Fouts, and our executive producer, David Allen Moss. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the path to change is available at your favorite bookstores across the US and Canada and online at Amazon and Indigo Chapters. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or visit my website at stephendorsey.com. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better, so that eventually we can all live better together. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II. 
And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.